0: This is Black Agenda Radio, a weekly hour of African American political thought and action.
1: Welcome to the radio magazine that brings you news, commentary, and analysis from a black left perspective. I'm Glenn Ford, along with my co host, Nellie Bailey. Coming up, the Black Alliance for Peace demands that elected officials tell us where they stand on militarism and endless war. A black scholar defends Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's description of immigration detention centers as concentration camps. And will examine the changing relationship between African Americans and the mother continent.
0: But first, August 9th, marks the 5th anniversary of the day Mike Brown was shot to death by a white policeman in Ferguson, Missouri, setting off national revulsion against killer cops and the criminal injustice system. Activists in cities around the country are commemorating the events that spawned the Black Lives Matter movement. Zaid Mohammed is with NCAP, Newark Communities for Accountable Policing.
2: So August 9th is Michael Brown, a young man, 18 years old, just out of high school, getting ready to go to college. A misunderstanding with a police officer in the middle of the street winds up being shot down spectacle fashion with his hands up, literally in sandals trying to get away from the man, and then left in the street for over four hours in the heat that was almost 100 degrees. It was a horrible spectacle, and then that would produce another fresh wave of protests both there in Ferguson that would lead to what we would call the Ferguson uprising and other protests throughout the country that were marked by that mantra, hands up, don't shoot. Horrible day, horrible incident, but the response of the people was enormous. That incident and, and several others around that time saw a bold, fresh manifestation of what we hope is a re-energizing of a people's movement around a broader question of social change. Of course, police brutality is the cutting edge and the centerpiece of that activity. But the broad participation of so many people willing to shut down streets, willing to stop highways, willing to make noise in ways that we had not seen in some time, were important to behold. Now, of course, a lot has happened in some places, and a lot has not happened in other places. Here in Newark, New Jersey, that same year, we had the election of Ras-Jua Baraka, the son of Amiri and Amina Baraka, a young man who was reared in struggle in some of the most serious revolutionary terms. And one of the first things he did was, by way of executive order, put together one of the most strongest and original civilian oversight entities in the country. However, within a short period of time, the Fraternal Order of Police and the Supervisors Union, particular to this area, will go into state court to block the implementation of that civilian review board. Thankfully, our community has stayed together and stayed mobilized and continues to fight for that oversight. It comes also at a time when we had and continue to have Newark police under federal oversight. There is a federal monitor over the Newark police, and there is an effort to implement a full-fledged reform of what was a very backward, very racist, and a very corrupt police department in ways that we have not seen since the very
1: early days of calls for a civilian review, but that go back to the mid-60s. One of the things about the events in Ferguson that were served as a shock to the system was that these actions were taken by grassroots folks in the street who carried on their organizing activity, even as Barack Obama, the first black president, was calling upon them to keep calm. I remember looking at a split screen on television as Barack Obama, is urging people not to react negatively to the district attorney's refusal to indict the cop that killed black gentlemen. And on the other side of the screen, the establishments in Ferguson were in flames. It was like an answer to the highest powers (laughs) of the state.
3: Yes, yes, yes. And for
2: all of Barack Obama's persona, and social magic as he was associated with for those who were so enamored with him it wasn't working that would not go cut it in the face of that because that was not an isolated incident you know that was the order of the day that was a constant factor that i would dare say that reflected what old folks used to call once upon a time the white backlash at him being elected and even though he has polls as history will certainly show There have been no threat to white supremacy or the imperial interests of the United States empire. But just the idea of that man being, I would dare say, triggered something in the most backwards and the most violent reactionary forces in this country. And one of its expressions was what happened to that young man in the streets. And thankfully, it was met with the kind of response that you saw on that split green. It was met with mass protest. It was met with the refusal to take that. It was met with resistance that talk just wasn't going to be enough for. And still, unfortunately, even though I, I was beginning to lay out some of the progress that we were making in, in, in Newark around what we've been doing, Newark, unfortunately, is an exception to what has been happening. Malcolm X once said, if you can't get integration and justice in, in New York, you won't get it anywhere in the country. Just before Michael Brown is there In Aragona's case, you know, we have all all kinds of hell has been raised, and and, uh, you have liberal leadership, for whatever that means, and it has meant nothing in terms of getting justice on that particular front. So the need, five years later, for continued protest, continued organization, continued reexamining of of how we're going to move to get social justice, are we going to continue to stay in that, that dead paradigm of being between Democrats, or I would call, dare say, Democrats, and the Republicans, is something that we hope continues to evaporate and then our, our young people begin to look at
1: other paradigms
2: and really begin to take this to some places where, of course, our oppressors and overseers are not going to be comfortable with them taking it.
1: And these are the kinds of subjects you'll be discussing on August 14th at the Newark Public Library.
2: Absolutely. In fact, we're going to be Skyping in some young activists from Ferguson who are still on the ground, who will give their own on-the-ground take on what has happened since then. We're looking
1: forward to it. Absolutely.
0: That was Zayed Mohammed speaking from Newark, New Jersey.
1: Black officeholders are about to be put on notice that their support for U.S. imperial crimes around the world goes against the grain of the pro-peace tradition in black America. Ajamu Baraka of the Black Alliance for Peace says both corporate parties try to keep U.S. foreign policy out of the political debate. The alliance is demanding that elected officials go on record on issues of war and peace. The pledge that the Black Alliance for Peace is going to be releasing next week, we are requiring
3: that these politicians, both incumbents and new candidates, take a clear position on the issues of war, repression, and militarism. We believe that these interlocking issues Are the issues along with climate change that represent a existential threat to our very existence, but yet they're not really being discussed during this campaign season. So we are suggesting that if these individuals are seeking our support, we must demand that they stand up for certain principles and values that we believe will save our people and save the planet. And this pledge, this petition that we are circulating, is not just for black elected officials, even though that's going to be the main target. These are positions that we believe that every individual who pretends to be a progressive, that they should, in fact, embrace. And if they don't, then, you know, it becomes quite clear where they really stand on these issues of war and militarism.
1: Why are people afraid of foreign policy questions? What is the root of the taboo that appears to be blanketing much of the discourse?
3: Well, you know, one of the reasons why we are releasing this petition uh, is connected to uh, the so-called national debates taking place within the context of the Democrat Party. In those debates, we have seen that the issues of U.S. foreign policy receives very little attention in fact, it was kind of amusing when the uh, debates that took place Wednesday night that when they devoted a few minutes to the issue of foreign policy, and they would then quickly move on to a subject that they really wanted to talk about, meaning the c n n moderators, which was the Mueller report and Russian Gate. the Blasio was desperately saying, "Well, what about Iran? We haven't had a chance to discuss any of these issues." and Don Lemon said basically, uh, no, we're moving on. So this is really the attitude and the approach. And one reason why why that's taken place, Glenn, is not so much that if there's any fear among the corporate media, is to expose the fact that there is real basic agreement among all parties involved, that both parties, the duopoly, that is, they are in basic alignment with and support of the strategic orientation of U.S. policy over the last two decades, which is full spectrum dominant, and the militarism, intervention, ongoing wars, and domestic repression that that generates and requires. So they don't want that unanimity, uh, that agreement among these various elements exposed to the U.S. public, in my opinion.
1: Yes, the Democrats want to run against Trump, but in terms of foreign policy, the Democratic Party is largely in line with Trump.
3: Exactly. There, there are common interests in upholding U.S. global hegemony. In fact, we know that, to be the fact, because of the objective policies taken by the Democrats, that even those very minor, minor steps are taken by the Trump administration to de-escalate tensions with North Korea, for instance. What do we have from the Democrats? We have them being the driving force in attempting to undermine that process, even going to the extent of calling for preventative legislation that will prevent the Trump administration from taking U.S. colonial occupation forces out of South Korea. The same thing with NATO. Trump uh, raised issues about uh, US participation and the fact that he said that the NATO nations are not spending their fair share on upholding NATO. The Democrats said that NATO is a very important instrument and they moved to try to block any possibility of the Trump administration moving away from NATO, even though we knew that wasn't going to happen. But it just demonstrates the reactionary nature of the Democrats, but also the fact that their objective stance is in alignment with the interests of U.S. imperialism and the interests of the ruling class here in this country. So this is what we are dealing with, and this is one of the reasons why we didn't get a chance to see uh, any real or hear any real conversation around this issue of whether or not a Democrat candidate would be still committed to full-spectrum dominance. We had no discussion around the obscene military budget of the third increase in spending since Trump has been in office, that is getting ready to pass once there's a reconciliation between the Senate and the House bills. We need to talk about the emergence of a conversation in Europe around a European army, what that implies, and we need to have a discussion on whether or not it's the the best use of the public's resources and the existence of the public to sink more than a trillion dollars in upgrading the US nuclear force. So these are very important issues that again, I have not gotten the kind of attention. They really demand from the corporate media and from the Democrat candidates. And we definitely won't hear that coming from the Republicans.
1: And we know that the Black constituency, the Black population in the United States, is the most pro-peace constituency, and yet most Black elected officials are Democrats, and the Democrats don't want to talk about peace or war or foreign policy in general.
3: Exactly. And that's how one can be defined as a so-called progressive, and even sometimes a radical, but yet still embrace imperialist positions. One of the things that's that's happening with Black American public opinion, though, is that we're seeing a shift. And that shift took place under the Obama administration regarding the stance of the Black population vis-a-vis issues of war and intervention. Still, there's still a a majority that is very skeptical and even oppositional when it comes to some of these uh, U.S. interventions. But We see a troubling trend developing, and even in some polls, suggesting that the conservatism among the black population has been enhanced and expanded over the last 10 years. So that's a very, very troubling trend that we need to watch very
1: closely and certainly Russiagate must have had an effect in that black folks almost uniformly hate Trump, and if Trump is associated with Russia, they start hating Russia too.
3: Exactly, Russiagate has been one of the most effective weapons that have been used to address the legitimation crisis facing the U.S. state and the system. The core of its position was that the U.S. population needed to pull together in opposition to the interventions by this foreign power. It suggested also, too, that the U.S. institutions, uh, specifically its intelligence agencies, are agencies whose objective interests lie with the nation state and the American people, and therefore they should be supported, unlike the position they claim that uh, Donald Trump held. It provided cover for a... Between silicon valley and the giant tech companies and the state to begin to limit information and analysis critical of the u.s state and system to the u.s population and to get popular support for those restrictions it is responsible for laying the foundation of liberal totalitarianism the real what i consider to be the real neo-fascist threat in this country while we had our attention focused on the theatrics and the real danger of the trump forces the real rightist forces are grouped around the neoliberal democrats and the neoliberal project they were strengthening the repressive apparatus of the state and laying the foundation for how they're going to try to maintain their hegemony going forward and we didn't even recognize it.
1: This Black Alliance for Peace 2020 candidate pledge contains seven elements. The first one calls for cutting the military budget by 50 percent, and the second opposes the militarization of the domestic police. But as you recall, back in 2014, 80 percent of the Congressional Black Caucus voted to continue that infamous 1033 militarization of the local police program.
3: Exactly. And we want to use this opportunity to remind the public in particular, the, the black public of that position and to remind them also of the danger of the continued militarization of the police forces and to demand that they put pressure on their representatives, their black representatives to take the correct and principal position on this issue. So yes, That is very important, and it's important because we have to make the connection. Of course, we have talked about the lack of attention to U.S. foreign policy and the ongoing and unending wars, but what we try to do and are doing with the Black Alliance for Peace is to make that connection between the commitment to militarism and war abroad by the U.S. state and the necessary commitment that it has taken to wage war against the population in this country or domestically and specifically against people of color and African people specifically also. That basically that connection has to be made in terms of our opposition to uh, militarization and to war. So we are calling for an end to that program. We are saying that any politician in this country that's worth their salt, they must also promote the closing of the more than 800 U.S. foreign bases around the world. That is the offensive capabilities of the U.S. Empire, And we say that they must also call for the ending of NATO that we define as basically a white supremacist colonialist structure. We say that they have to also uh, support and call for ending AFRICOM, which is the U.S. Africa Command, and to demand that all U.S. military personnel are taken out of the African continent. And we say that they've got to also be adamant about demanding that the Department of Justice investigate every instance of the use of lethal force. We know that everybody's so upset because the federal government under Trump or the DOJ under Trump did not follow up and prosecute the killer cop there in in New York who murdered Eric Garner. But we have to remind people that that's just consistent with federal policies. That In eight years under the Obama administration, his DOJ only chose to prosecute one of these killer cops in eight years so let's be consistent we say also too that that they have to commit to passing at every level of government resolutions saying that the u.s must uphold international law and support the united nations charter and lastly very very important we say that they must sponsor legislation or resolutions at every level of government again calling on the US to support the United Nations resolution that was passed in July of of 2017 by 122 nations, calling for the complete global abolishment of nuclear weapons. This, for us, represents a minimum program for a progressive approach to how US public policy, foreign policy, should be executed, and the kinds of values and principles that we must uphold as progressive people, as people moving toward the kind of change we have to make in this country. These are the kinds of policies we must demand that these representatives uphold.
1: Regarding respect for the United Nations Charter, almost every element of U.S. foreign policy, not just under Trump, but also under Obama in Libya and Syria, and of course in Venezuela, has been in gross violation of international law. But international law is not even a subject for discussion in the United States
3: which is a major issue and contradiction because what uh, we have seen as a consequence of the global war on terror is that the U.S. is quite clearly now, and it always has been, but I think that the pretext has been removed. Uh, the U.S. is now a global rogue state. It is a state that operates outside of the, the standard, normal standards and international law Established over the last 70 years. And that has to be understood. If we are going to have a global community that's going to be able to survive uh, with global cooperation, there has to be some minimal commitment to these international standards. Right now, the U.S. has concluded, with it appears to be a majority of the people, that it should not be held to the same standards. And in fact, they are working systematically to undermine international norms and international law that has to be reversed
1: during the iraq war we observed what was described as a black mother's strike that is black mothers were discouraging their sons and daughters from going into the military during the iraq war but we don't have that kind of consciousness of u.s military involvement around the world these days
3: and that's part of the, of the task and responsibility that we have taken up uh, in the Black Alliance for Peace. We, we understand that we have to work to reverse that, to build that kind of radical, that kind of consciousness among our folks and really among the working class in general. And that's why we, we are part of and support the Black is Back Coalition, for example, that says that with these unending uh, and ongoing wars, imperialist wars around the world that we need to turn imperialist wars into wars against imperialism so it shifts the the focus and it puts us on the offensive if you will so we believe that we have a responsibility to do that kind of work and that's in fact what we are trying to do and we're also trying to push other organizations that claim to be progressive and even sometimes radical that they cannot embrace that definition without re-embracing the traditional Black internationalist tradition, one that is is uh, anti-imperialist, one that is in solidarity with all the oppressed people around the world, one that is quite clear on who the enemy is and who our potential friends are. Therefore, they won't be confused by where they should stand on issues like intervention in Libya or the criminal activity being uh, executed against the state of Venezuela.
1: Just recently, Alicia Garza, one of the co-founders of Black Lives Matter, announced the results of a project that she called the Black Census and described as the biggest research or survey of Black public opinion ever. And yet there was not one question in this survey about Foreign policy. And that
3: was unfortunate, but I think it represents the kind of political orientation and consciousness that uh, I just spoke about. You know, when people understand that traditionally the black radical movement in the United States of America was always an internationalist movement, this was the space where Jamaicans and Bahamians and people from around, Africans from around the world came to the U.S. and became Africans and became anti-imperialist because this was the center of African radical thought because most of the African world was still subjected to U.S. and primarily European colonialism. So, you know, that kind of internationalist perspective is something that's been a central part of our tradition. And we've got to help these young folks who have been propped up as new leaders. We need to help them to understand that a U.S.-centric perspective is not something that is part of our tradition, and in fact, it only helps to confuse our people uh, and to prop up U.S. imperialist hegemony. And therefore, a real radical position is one that understands that we are part of a global system and understands and recognizes that we have to have allies and engage in reciprocal solidarity with all people who are subjected to the oppression and exploitation of a common enemy and a common enemy structure
1: that was a jamu baraka of the black alliance for peace
0: freshman congresswoman alexandria ocasio-cortez known as aoc came under savage attack when she described detention centers for immigrants as concentration camps but zoe samudzi author of the book as Black as Resistance, says AOC is correct and brought in broadening the popular discussion about the various ways that targeted groups are contained and controlled. Sumutzi's latest essay is titled Policing the Borders of Suffering. She says no ethnic group has a monopoly on terms like genocide and concentration camp.
4: I think that in my kind of perfect political world, there would be much more of a democratization of language, right? And much more of a historical understanding of all of the different groups that have been subjected to these kinds of, like, genocidal conditions or these conditions of detainment. Why are we not asking Indigenous communities what constitutes genocide or what constitutes this kind of concentration camp, like, detention freeze? Why are we not asking the Herrera? Why are we not asking Libyans under Italian occupation? I think that it's really important to understand exactly what led to the Nazi Holocaust. It's really critical to understand how the German people were actively supportive of the Nazi government and what eventually led to this horrifying annihilation or attempted annihilation of, of Jews in Europe. And also, I think that when we exceptionalize it in a particular way, we actually don't understand exactly what happened in the Holocaust. We are not taking into account all of the work that the Germans did in order to prepare themselves for this eventual attempt to exterminate Jews in Europe, Jews and others in Europe. We don't talk about what the Germans did to the Herero and how the genocide of Herero and Nama people in what is now Namibia was this kind of bureaucratic political ideological precursor to the Nazi Holocaust. I think that our histories are so interdependent and they're so co-constituted that it doesn't make sense to understand a particular atrocity in isolation. And I think that we do ourselves a pretty massive disservice in understanding how fascism works when we do that. And so it's been really inspiring for me to see a number of different like radical and progressive Jewish groups, like working with immigration advocates in connecting these narratives, that's been really, really heartening.
1: Yes, Aimé César, the French-speaking African, famously wrote back in the World War II era when Europeans were moaning and groaning about what had been imposed upon them. He wrote, well, colonialism, to paraphrase Aimé César, colonialism had all of the attributes of this fascism that you're suffering under now, and you imposed it on of the world.
4: Absolutely. And I find it really interesting when colonialism and fascism aren't understood kind of together um, as far as like violence and genocide and partial control are concerned because, you know, fascism doesn't just emerge out of a hole in the ground in the way that we kind of talk about Hitler's meteoric rise to power or Mussolini, right? Like it is a mutation of kind of colonial violence of this attempt to impose a strong state. And Yeah, to not understand this kind of structural evolution from like feudalism to capitalism to fascism. Again, we're we're really not understanding how fascism functions and which means that we're not going to properly understand how to fight it in, in all of these different ways that we can.
1: At the beginning of your wonderful essay, you describe the conditions your mother lived in as a teenager in Zimbabwe under white rule, living in protected villages, that is, villages that were surrounded by barbed wire, entrance into and exit from, tightly controlled. But Almost all of South Vietnam was under those kinds of circumstances under the Americans in the 60s.
4: Mm -hmm. Something to me that I think is missing from this conversation about concentration camps is it shouldn't simply be alarming that we get to a point where something is bad enough to be called a concentration camp. What should be alarming is the fact that so many of our accepted and acceptable prison structures mirror the function of concentration camps. So... To look at the southern border and to to, to say that this is a particularly egregious kind of detention and treatment, but to not look at American prisons, present-day American prisons in the same way, to not look at military kind of detainment throughout American history, both domestically and abroad, there's a weird kind of disconnect and a weird kind of exceptionalism in the way that we understand how people should or should not be detained. There's a really kind of unsettling disconnect in the way that we seem to, to object to certain kinds of carceral violence and make others acceptable. So if we're going to be in solidarity with the people who are being detained on the southern border, then we also have to be in solidarity with incarcerated people when they're striking about what they're describing as prison slavery and when they're being held in inhuman conditions. And we have to be supportive of abolitionist politics that are understanding and articulating a politic of humanity for everyone we can't pick and choose who gets to be a person and who gets our love and support and empathy. It's either everybody
1: or it's no one. You write a very cogent sentence, which I'm going to share with the listeners. You say, the purpose of the concentration camp, as with any racialized or othering carceral space, is to suspend the humanity of the incarcerated people in the liminal space between the human and non-human. Well, ghettos are racialized spaces. And during periods of so-called emergency, those spaces are shut down and emergency measures are enacted so people can't come and go. What do you call a ghetto?
4: I would also analogize a ghetto to a prison. Yeah, that's a very easy connection for me to draw. It's a space that is very often militarized. It is a space where people kind of housing segregation are, are kind of forced to remain, you know, people are often unable to get financing to buy housing elsewhere. Yeah. I would also envision the ghetto functioning the same way, the same way as the prison.
1: And of course we speak of the open air prison of Gaza.
4: Absolutely. Where movement again is incredibly limited and people are, are forced to checkpoints and people aren't allowed to go to places of worship. And, People are often also subjected to airstrikes and bombing campaigns when they're given a couple of minutes to leave, if they're given that warning
1: by the Israeli government.
4: There are so many different spaces like this. Like, look at the favelas.
1: Yes, and in fact, if we look at the whole 500-year history of colonialism and the growth of white supremacy, it is a constant creation of these kinds of racialized, restricted containment spaces.
4: Yeah, and I think that it's useful to create a typology of something being a space for residents, of something being um, specifically designated as a prison, specifically designated as a kind of detention center. But to say that the typology is not necessarily uh, a description of like the severity, because all of these racialized spaces function in service of anti-blackness, anti-indigeneity, white supremacy, whatever. They just happen to look different and happen to be called different things for our convenience, I think.
1: And therefore, it follows that those who profit from and defend white supremacy are certainly not the people to define these terms.
4: Absolutely not. And it's been really interesting for me to see the Republican Party responding to AOC and saying, you know, it is an affront, to Jewish people, it is an anti-Semitic thing to call it a concentration camp and to see them positioning themselves as like defenders of Jewish people in America when the kind of allowances of white supremacist policy and the ways that Trump is emboldening kind of racist vigilantes is actively making America less safe for Jewish people. So there's an interesting kind of double speak in the ways that they are both permitting the growth And the further fomentation of American fascism as they are claiming to be in support of a minoritized
1: group in this country.
4: Yeah, it's very odd.
1: Especially when Palestine, under a Zionist occupation, is nothing but a patchwork of racialized places.
4: Absolutely. And from the creation of the state, right, as the state was intended to emulate colonial stratifications, right, as Herzl wrote a letter to (laughs) Cecil Rhodes saying, you know, what you did in Africa, I want to do in Asia Minor. And so then there's the support for that structure, like Netanyahu's support for fascist leadership across the world, like it's also making the world less safe for Jewish people. So it's like on all of these different levels, they're supporting these political policies that make the world less safe for everyone. And yet, are kind of objectifying and tokenizing and weaponizing this history of violence in order to further enable this incredibly violent imperial border policy.
1: And how does your mother, who came of age in one of these protected villages in Zimbabwe, how she feel about your essay and your analysis?
4: I think after Trump's election, I remember she told me that there was something about him that reminded her of this kind of combination of Ian Smith and of Mugabe. And part of the reason that she wanted to have children and part of the reasons that she stayed in the United States was the hopes of bringing us somewhere safer and somewhere where we would have maybe more access to mobility. And obviously, over the years, she's realized that that's not necessarily true. But I think that this particular election has been really, really scary for her. And I hope that her talking to me about the protected villages and about you know, growing up in Rhodesia has been a little bit cathartic for her and giving her maybe some more language and understanding what she had experienced. But Yeah, we talk
0: about it a lot. That was author and essayist Zoe Sabutzi.
1: Namata Blyden is a professor of history and international affairs at George Washington University and author of the book African Americans and Africa, A New History. Blyden has a unique perspective on the subject. She was born in Sierra Leone, West Africa, the descendant of a renowned pan-Africanist and an African-American mother. Professor Blyden talks about her book.
5: It's a new perspective more than a new history. What I've tried to do is to sort of hone in and focus in on this long-standing relationship that African-Americans have had with the continent of Africa and try to give a new perspective on it. And that's, I suppose, what makes it new. But the information is not new. It's in other places. Other scholars have talked about Africa and American relationships and engagement with Africa.
1: And some of that history is embodied in your own personal history. You're the descendant of an African, that is, an African in the Americas who returned to Africa and became known as a noteworthy pan-Africanist.
5: Absolutely. So definitely part of my own personal history was an impetus for first teaching a course. I taught a course for many years called, and I still do, African-Americans and African links in history. So that obviously was an impetus. And also more directly, I have an African-American mother and an African father, which, you know, when you read the book, you'll see it's much more complicated than that, right? My African father is, of course, the descendant of people who were enslaved and went, quote unquote, back to Africa.
1: Which, of course, puts some light on the whole controversy that's been raised by the ADOS organization, those folks who say that there are actually real political differences and historical and legal differences between African-Americans and people from the diaspora and the continent who are not African-Americans, specifically regarding things like reparations.
5: Absolutely. And I must say that I'm not up with the with Eidos the movement or with uh, understanding what their focus is. But they're definitely one of the things I think that my book will illuminate is, yes, the very many differences, but also the complexities of who we can talk about as being a black American or an African-American. So I, an African-American mother and an African father, raised uh, both in Sierra Leone and the United States, came here at the age of 18 in sort of as an immigrant, right? Not having spent my formative years or my childhood in the United States. So where do I fit in, in the ADO's narrative? Am I African, which, you know, much of my sensibility is that being that I spent my formative years in West Africa or am I African-American because I was born here and my birth certificate says so. And I have an African-American mother and ancestors who were enslaved on my mother's side, but I also have ancestors who were enslaved on my father's side, as people who read the book will find out. It's complex.
1: Black American perceptions of Africa have undergone real transformations over the past several generations. I remember when perceptions of Africans in most Black communities was of a primitive people that folks should be ashamed of. Yes. Yes.
5: And that's a large part of my story is this push-pull, if you want to say, relationship that African-Americans have had with the continent, right? So there's the spectrum of relationships, engagements, influence that African-Americans have had with the continent of Africa. And some of that is the rejection, because as I talk about in the book, the negative ways that Africa has been portrayed, as jungle, as the dark continent, as a place that needs uplift and civilization. And so many African-Americans over the centuries, and perhaps even till today, believe or have bought into this idea of Africa as a backward place that needs saving, and also as a place that they don't want to associate themselves with. In their quest, as you'll see throughout the book, in their quest to be, be accepted, become part of American society, many African-Americans rejected their African ancestry. Some might argue, rightly so, that in fact, they were Americans, right? So I talk about those who say, we've come here, we've helped build this country. uh, We are Americans, we are not Africans.
1: And yet on the other side of the spectrum, there are those who imbue Africa with all of these romantic qualities and secret and deep knowledges that most Africans are not aware of either. Absolutely. And so that's
5: the other side of it, right? Those who embrace it in a romanticized way. And I talk about that as well. This notion of Africa's glorious past, the great civilizations, all of which are true. Right? This notion that Africa is this idyllic space. There's that side of the coin as well for for many African Americans who then sometimes find it disappointing when they do eventually go to Africa. So I talk about the relationship between African Americans and Africa in this book in terms of the real connections, but also the imagined connections, the way in which Africa has figured in the imagination of African Americans over the centuries.
1: And not in imaginings, but in perceptions. Lots of African Americans perceive that the Africans they meet, particularly in college situations, come from an elite in their own countries, that they're not just the regular folk.
5: Right. And that's true. And, you know, even, I mean, I talk about African students who come here in the 19th century, and it's true, many of them come, came from elite backgrounds. Those who, you know, have been coming in the last 40, 50 years as well have been largely from privileged backgrounds. Not all. We have a significant refugee population of Africans in the United States. So there is this idea that many of at least the early students who came may have come from privileged backgrounds and they had the economic Wherewithal to be able to come here to study a student. So that's one side of the coin. But then in the last, I would say 30 years, many of the Africans who are coming here are not of the elite, are not of high economic status or background.
1: Yes, and that perception that many of these students were from elites led to some resentments in terms of who gets affirmative action and the white folks' ability to show off black students who weren't even from here.
5: And that's a very important issue. You know, I wrote this book really so that I could have a book to teach with my students. But in so much as I think about what it might do, is to open up a conversation about some of these issues, because those are real issues. The issue of affirmative action to non-ADOS, I suppose we can call them now, right? Non-ADOS Blacks, children of immigrants from the Caribbean or from Africa. And that was a story in the 80s and the 90s and still is a story where universities are filling these spots with those populations. But it's more complicated than that because we also now have a generation of students who are the children of African immigrants who've been here for the last 20 or 30 years, whose sensibilities and experiences are that of African Americans in terms of what they've experienced. The story is becoming even more complicated.
1: Yes, whatever people come with, their children inherit the situation of black Americans if they are black. Exactly.
5: exactly. So when I'm walking down the street, regardless of what I look like or what I'm wearing, the assumption is that I am an African-American, whether I come from Mali or Jamaica or Nigeria. Right. The assumption is, well, you know, that was true, perhaps until the last few weeks, where now, the assumption is that, you know, we all don't belong, right?
1: <laughs> you write that you hope that American readers will unlearn the many negative and derogatory representations of Africa that they've been exposed to. Well, what are some of those representations that still exist?
5: I mean, the notion of Africa's backward, savage, needing to be saved, needing to be civilized. Those are many of the persistent images that have remained of Africa, despite our easier access to the continent, despite the fact that we are now encountering Africans more and more in this country. Some of those ideas about Africa still linger. The notion of Africa as a country is one that has remained for many, as one, this one monolithic place.
1: Well, you know, the biggest splash that Africa has made in the United States in recent times is with the movie The Black Panther and that fictional country, Wakanda. But is that a good representation of Africa? Many of us thought this is quite unhealthy, the elevation and romanticizing of a fictional and very feudal society.
5: So I'm chuckling because... I am a big superhero fan. My youngest son is 19, and ever since he was a little boy, that was part of our bonding, was going to superhero movies and watching superhero cartoons. So when I went to see the Black Panther movie, I went solely as a superhero fan. And thankfully, I had finished the book before the movie came out, and I didn't have to engage with it. And I, you know, I've given it about a year before I approach it critically. And there are many ways that you can approach that movie critically. For me, I think the conversation that it raised about the relationship between African-Americans and Africa is important. I mean, there are many things that I think one can pick at as far as the movie is concerned in its representation of Africa in a very romanticized and idyllic way. It's true, but I think it's attempt to begin a conversation, and to, you know, let's be honest, stoke pride to some extent in Africa, among African Americans. That's one thing that I think that the movie did, however unrealistic, we might argue, its representation of Wakanda was. So in that sense, I think that it was a good thing, Uh, yet we can pick at many of the things about it that, as you say, were perhaps too fantastical
1: or feudal feudalism is not fantastic. It's a depressive system from the past. Yeah. So,
5: so I, I guess I remind myself that it is a movie, but I understand what you're saying in it's in the way it's represented a particular kind of society that we may not necessarily want
1: for ourselves. Many of us of a certain age and a certain politics were very disappointed because we like the images of African revolutionaries overthrowing white rule and capitalism, and that doesn't jive with Wakanda.
5: And the movie did not do that, absolutely not.
1: You write that you hope that community organizers, African-Americans and others in the United States, make an effort to co-opt and include Black immigrants in their activism. How receptive, in your experience, are Black immigrants to appeals to activism?
5: I mean, I think that more and more. African immigrants are recognizing the need to be part of these organizing movements. There were many African immigrants, you know, I saw that in my students who were part of the Black Lives Matter movement, for example. And, you know, all immigrants do when they come to the United States or when they go, you know, anywhere, their first impetus or their first inclination is to settle in you know, be good citizens, not ruffle feathers, that, you know, that's sort of the immigrant ethos. And, and that's true for earlier African immigrants. But I think more recent African immigrants are recognizing the importance of being a part of the African American community in terms of organizing. So I think that it's happening, particularly with younger generations.
1: You talk about the prejudices and misconceptions that Black Americans may have of Africans, but what about Africans, including those who come here to study, and their misperceptions about Black Americans?
5: Many. And I was thinking about that because I've been thinking about writing an an essay. And I've been thinking about that because, you know, as I said to you, I grew up in Sierra Leone. And I grew up in Sierra Leone watching television which was all the sort of 1970s television shows that were on American TV, McLeod, Macmillan and Wise. And I was thinking about what kind of representations of Black Americans did we have growing up? And I asked my husband, too, who was also raised in Sierra Leone. And all we could think of was the way they were represented in those shows from the 1970s, the Kojaks, you know, as the criminals in those shows, if they were even, represented at all. And then we got the movies. And so the movies we got were the Shafts and the Cleopatra Joneses and the Foxy Brown movies. My husband reminded me that he had watched the movie Cornbread Earl and Me, I think is what it was called, but very few positive representations of Africa. And so when Africans, I mean, I've lived on the continent for decades now, so I don't know what kind of representations they're getting now, but certainly when I came to the United States, those were the representations of African-Americans I had outside of, of course, my mother who was an African-American, right? So we come or we came with those ideas of this is what we were going to see in terms of the Black American population, very stereotypical stock um, character uh, representations um, from those kinds of popular culture, things that we had. Of course, you know, we had African-American music, so we did have that, but they were not positive all-around positive representations of, of African Americans that we saw. And of course, you know, if you read, you've you got other representations, and many Africans did read African American literature and so had and have positive representations. But, you know, I guess that's a question that can be answered generationally by people who came from Africa at different periods in history, what they got a, in terms of their understanding of African Americans, was very different. I'm sure when my father came here in the 50s, in the 1940s and 50s as a student, if he had any representations of African Americans at all, who knows what those were.
1: Earlier, we were discussing your ancestor, Edward Wilmot Blyden, the famous pan-Africanist. In your dealings with Africans and with African-Americans on both sides of the Atlantic. What do you think the status of pan-Africanism is today?
5: You know, I always, and this is something I've thought about quite a bit, because I think, you know, pan-Africanism has its moments, right, when it either works or it doesn't work. And, And there seems to always be something that we must be against, for pan-Africanism to flourish in many instances, right? So when we talk about, you know, the sort of heyday of pan-Africanism of the late 19th and early 20th century, of course, we can talk about the movement against racism, colonialism, Jim Crow, all of that sort of thing. What is our moment now? And I think perhaps we can think about some of the moments now that we need to start thinking about as moments when perhaps a Pan-Africanism is necessary, right? Which, you know, it has continued in various guises. Pan-Africanism has continued in various guises and small pockets in the Black world. But that sort of movement that we come to characterize as the heyday, I suppose, of Pan-Africanism that the Du Bois conference is, is there a moment for that now? And that's a question I, I mean, I don't know that I have an answer to, but that I wonder about, what is the moment now that would require a coming together of African-descended people?
0: And that's it for this edition of Black Agenda Radio. Be sure to visit us at blackagendareport.com where you will find a new and provocative issue each Wednesday. That's www.blackagendareport.com. It's the place for news, commentary, and analysis from the black left. I'm Nellie Bailey, along with my co-host, Glenn Ford. Our thanks to the good people at the Progressive Radio Network.